Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global Podcast. We are here today to talk about privacy in cryptocurrency, as well as zero-knowledge proofs and other privacy-preserving techniques. Okay, we're joined by a couple of very special guests, Elena Natalinsky and Howard Wu. Guys, can you please introduce yourselves and why you are so excited about privacy? Perhaps, Elena, you could start. I've been kind of involved in the crypto space for a while now, and I've kind of stumbled upon zero-knowledge proofs as a way to do verifiable computing. And I realized that this tech is very new, but also very powerful and can open a lot of doors to different problems. And that's kind of my motivation for really diving in and learning about this tech. Hey, I'm Howard. I'm a co-founder and managing partner at Decrypt Capital. My, my background has been primarily starting in this space very early through Bitcoin mining. And when the altcoins started popping up, I got very much interested in researching this technology, um, understanding what are the trust models and what are the assumptions that people are making to build secure networks? I found privacy to be a very fundamental and unique uh, property of these networks that are underutilized and underrepresented. And my, my background has been primarily in research in the cryptography space, especially on things around zero-knowledge proofs and around um, verifiable computations and its applications towards things like blockchains. And you mentioned, Howard, that you're, the other time you spend is, is around investing. Can you say a bit more just about your investing? Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I help run a fund called Decrypt Capital. And our, our main thesis is that we really like to see this technology reach mainstream adoption. Um, you know, along with my partners, we've been here for many years. And the, the take that we have is through looking at it from pain points. Um, so things like scalability, privacy, interoperability, um, usability. And uh, we find that these are areas where if we, we can even get ourselves to around 80% there, it becomes something that's very practical for people like my mom and dad to use technology. We like to really dive into some of those fundamental underlying problems and address it uh, through uh, layer one protocols. So let's get into privacy a little bit because a lot of people sort of assume that, you know, Bitcoin is anonymous. You know, they think about like things like the Silk Road or, you know, they hear all these uh, quote unquote criminals using, using Bitcoin. So what, what, why is privacy useful? Why is it important? And why is it not solved with something like Bitcoin? Yeah, sure. So Bitcoin early on, as it was released in the white paper, claimed that this was supposed to be an anonymous uh, cryptocurrency. I think in practice, what we've seen is that it really isn't. There's a lot of techniques that people use, such as uh, taint analysis, transaction graph analysis, to basically de-anonymize the network. It turns out that while the addresses themselves can initially be quote-unquote anonymous, the practicalities of using these, these addresses to transact coins with each other uh, reveals a lot about not only your spending behaviors, but who the other parties are that you typically transact with. And uh, it links you to other folks' activities as well. What I find most fascinating about this area is the, is not the fact that it, you know, it can be used for nefarious reasons, but the fact that this is in and of itself a very simple and basic fundamental right. Um, I think that privacy is one of those cases where you know, people often don't appreciate it until they don't have it, you know, and, and to paint quite a picture on it, a very common case of like a, a bathroom, you know, there are bathroom stalls for people to use it. Certainly some people use bathroom stalls for very nefarious reasons, but the, the overall majority of people would like some privacy when they're in the restroom. And uh, I, I think that it's very much the same case here, that there are very clearly uh, linkages between one's account balances and their identity. There are very, very clearly um, abilities to kind of determine things like 
merchant cash flow, uh, current and past OK. And ultimately, what this is really about is basically providing a layer of comfort for people, for businesses and organizations where when they use uh, this technology, they don't want their account balances and you know all the coins or how much money they have uh, or all the assets that they own leaked to, to their parties that, that they're transacting with. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think a lot of people have this misconception that privacy on the blockchain does lead to illegal activity. Uh, but if you kind of take it a step back and you kind of analyze how we interact with our payment systems today, just because a friend of mine and I shared a coffee doesn't mean I get to have the right to see all of their transactions. And if we were to live in a world where all we use were cryptocurrency blockchains to do our computations, then that would basically mean that, where I would I would be able to see all the transactions of all time from all the people I've ever interacted. So when you kind of look, look at it that way, you, you kind of realize that, yes, privacy is kind of a right that we all have. And just because we're trying to put privacy on the blockchain doesn't mean we want to expand on illegal activity. Do you guys think that privacy, like, how, how do we think it's going to be adopted? Do you think you know, existing blockchains like Ethereum and Bitcoin will will adopt you know privacy features, maybe maybe copy some of the ones that are working, or do you think sort of independent blockchains like Zcash, Monero, or others will will have their own utility? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an argument to be made of each blockchain has its own. Um, I think uh, so. Ethereum is well known for smart contracts, and to add privacy on top of smart contracts would be very hard. But I think like one of the their decisions. Their decisions could be to not do privacy and focus primarily on being a smart contracts platform and leave privacy preserving features to other blockchains. I, I would say that having these features built into existing blockchains is extremely valuable. Um, but at the same time, I can also see the pushback that one, you know, the founders may have and two, certainly the community may have. I think that adding this technology itself is just so computationally um, expensive. And uh, for some of these uh, larger market cap uh, cryptocurrencies, they may have some pushback from different groups of supporters. I'm certainly enthusiastic of them adding in things like cryptographic primitives that are useful for, for example, verifying ZK snarks. This is an area where you know having zero knowledge proofs be uh, available for for use cases, not even just for the full thing, but for for specific niche use cases, would be valuable. But at the same time, I think that there's very clearly a delineation that will happen where there will be new blockchains that come out that are going to be very much uh, privacy forward. And I think they will provide a lot of uh, architectural infrastructure that you just wouldn't get from other types of blockchains. Do you think that they will be used both as a means of payment, but also threaten, you know, Bitcoin's usage as a store value or just a, sorry, as like a medium of exchange for certain certain use cases? I, I definitely think that this technology itself can be a disruptor. If you look at the different types of uh, use cases around privacy preserving technologies, it's very clearly not just payments. And I think that if you think about where where payments are going to go, it's very likely going to be around building out uh, distributed financial logic and having this financial logic itself enable certain types of use cases that uh, may be as part of intellectual property or trade secrets makes it very clearly uh, you know, the need for having private computations. And I think that a lot of the existing blockchains themselves will not be able to support these types of features natively as time goes on, especially because this area of research continues to develop very quickly. And uh, therefore, you know, for these chains to kind of stay up to date with it, I think it will be quite difficult. That's where having a new architecture for these types of blockchains, where the the smart contract platform itself is built to be very modular up front and to be very flexible uh, for upgradability reasons, uh, will be really important. Two questions for you, Howard. One is, how do you look at, you know, decrypt, how you evaluate privacy from an investment 
respect, like what's your you know investment thesis on privacy in terms of what you guys are looking for? And two, why aren't you yourself building a, building a privacy coin? <laughs> well, first off, I think you know, blockchains uh, are very early. We're still in what I would call the experimental phase. And when it comes to you know my interest here and how we look at it, basically, if you look at modern cryptography, most of it is used today for security properties around data. You can think about confidentiality or authenticity of data, but there's very little in the way of the security properties for computations. Think about you know how do you ensure the integrity of a computation, especially one that maybe you outsource to a server elsewhere. That's where cryptographic proofs are uh, very powerful tools. Um, they're a powerful defense mechanism against malicious behavior, um, and they leverage themselves quite nicely in uh, decentralized protocols. So I, I think that the use case here for cryptographic proofs to enable computations has to, one, have these privacy-preserving properties, but two, also enable more computations in a what, what, what we would classify as a mutually distrusting uh, group of participants. And the zero-knowledge proofs are a perfect use case for this. These are uh, mutually distrusting participants uh, on blockchains today that want to do computations with each other, but have no ways to enforce their privacy currently. And providing zero-knowledge proofs is a privacy-preserving uh, approach to enabling computational integrity. And that's where I think it's very naturally motivated to look at projects in this space that are basically exploring more than just privacy coins. I think that the payments uh, area is certainly important, but looking at things from just financial logic or business logic as a whole uh, is even more powerful. And I think this would enable a huge amount of use cases. You can think about um, some of the kind of low-hanging fruits, like having encrypted voting, having you know even scalable smart contracts, um, verifiable credentials, confidential marketplaces and uh, in, and the general class of private computation this would enable a huge uh, host of new applications and use cases where i think some some of these uh, early developments in the space today would become much more naturally motivated yeah so you're saying privacy coins are only one uh, you know or payments are only one one use case and there are a whole other swath of of use cases that your research and and others research can help unlock absolutely so with that let's uh, you know we're going to get into some details about how the specific coins work in like Zcash Monero in a bit. But first, let's get into some of these privacy preserving protocols and how they work. And let's, let's explain them as if we were, you know, both on, on a high level to our audience, but also as if we were explaining to a, to five year old so that it's uh, super easy to understand. Sure. Yeah. So zero knowledge proof basically enables you to say, I can't tell you the secret, but I can prove to you that I know the secret. And if you think about a very simple example, like Where's Waldo? This is a very classic example from the literature. Picture this this Where's Waldo puzzle. And basically, there's this one guy you're trying to find uh, in this giant swath of people. If you wanted to convey to someone else that you knew where Waldo was on this map, what you could do is bring him into a room with this map, have a white piece of paper cover that map. And if you just cut out Waldo, uh, make a cut out of Waldo on that white piece of paper, and show it to the other person, they could learn that you know where Waldo is without revealing to them you know, where on the map Waldo is. You'd imagine this white piece of paper to be significantly larger than, than the map itself. And this would basically demonstrate to them your knowledge. But at the same time, if you just you know had them turn around, take the paper away, and just throw it away, they would come back around, look at the map, and still not know where Waldo is. And that, that's a very canonical example of a zero-knowledge proof that it basically demonstrates to them that you know the secret of where Waldo is, but you can't you, but but I, I but uh, you don't have to show them exactly where Waldo is. You just prove it to them. How the hell do we do that? 
<laughs> so do you mean from like like a, a technical standpoint or yeah. from like an example? Technical, like should we should we get into it? How some of it works? Sure. I mean, I think that's fine. Basically, when it comes to providing a zero knowledge proof system, you have two parties. You have a prover and a verifier. Both of them know some common function. This function is is basically like some statement that I'm trying to claim. Like, you know, I can solve this Sudoku puzzle. And, uh, you know, maybe then the claimed output here would be that, you know, in the Sudoku puzzle, if you look at every column and every row, the filled in answer should have, you know, one through nine on them. Then if I'm the prover, like I'm trying to prove to some verifier that I know the answer to the Sudoku puzzle, I would basically provide my private input, which in this case is the answer key where, you know, where all those numbers are going to sit. And if I plug those in, um, I can generate uh, a, a cryptographic proof, a zero knowledge proof in this case that I could give to the verifier and the verifier knowing just the function and the expected output here of the Sudoku puzzle, along with this proof, can check and verify that indeed I know the answer. And just like in that Where's Waldo case, um, I wouldn't reveal uh, the actual solution to the puzzle, and that gives the verifier a chance to basically solve that Sudoku puzzle for themselves as well. Why don't you explain some implementations of where zero-knowledge proofs are being used, or how they're being used? Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, zero-knowledge proofs right now are uh, kind of in a bit of a of a golden age, so to speak. We've seen uh, in the past, uh, you know, the first kind of constructions of these were uh, in the late 80s. And uh, there was quite a stall for uh, maybe about a decade uh, in the early 2000s. And uh, it wasn't until, you know, the towards the end of that where some newer notions on how you would construct a zero-knowledge proof were introduced. So this is specifically going down this thread of uh, ZK SNARKs, which are zero-knowledge synced non-interactive arguments of knowledge. And the basic premise around them for all of that jargon is to say, I can create a proof that is very short, it's succinct, whereby me as the prover, I only have to construct a proof and give it to you, the verifier, and we don't have to interact any more than that, so it's non-interactive. And this is specifically a, a proof that I know something, and I can convince you this, that I know some secret without showing you the secret. So ZK Snarks themselves are... A very powerful tool, and they have only uh, in very recent uh, years become very practical for use. So, in part because you know computers are are becoming uh, much more powerful, but at the same time, the theory, the construction of these protocols are getting much more refined. Uh, th- there's two very interesting libraries um, that are currently out there. One is LibSnark, and LibSnark basically is a C++ library that has a host of reference implementations of ZK-SNARK protocols and is the de facto library that is used uh, by most researchers and and some some uh, industry production developments uh, in the field. You know, one example of this would be Zcash, uh, which we can get to in a second. Um, there is another library uh, called Bellman that is actually by the Zcash team, by Sean at Zcash. And Bellman is a, a Rust implementation of a particular ZK-SNARK protocol. And it's uh, it allows for a very fast uh, construction and a very nice construction that uh, uh, stands its own weight uh, separate of LibSnark. Very recently, actually, just just about last week, I just released a, a new library that's called Dizik, D-I-Z-K. And uh, this is a distributed zero-knowledge proof system. So this is a new Java library that's just published, and it scales a ZK-SNARK protocol to enable computations in the billions of logical gates. To give you some perspective on that, uh, LibSnark allows you to compute proofs for problems that are around 10 to 20 million gates. And uh, being able to go to 
over a billion gates. Uh, here it gives you basically 100x performance uh, improvements. You can scale this 100x larger than previous, uh, previously. And what, what happens here is that you would basically compute the proof on something like you know, Amazon EC2, where you spin up a cluster and you can basically use Apache Spark to distribute these computations and uh, construct the proof itself there. And this, this gives uh, rise to basically a whole new class of, of use cases. Some of those applications we had just talked about earlier can now become much more practical in this domain. And, uh, you know, this is another body of work. So Lipsnark, Bellman, and Dizig, they're all on GitHub. Uh, you can go to lipsnark.org. You can uh, Google like Zcash Bellman and you'll find that implementation. And if you go to dizig.org, D-I-Z-K.org, that would be for the distributed library. And, and which use cases are you perhaps most excited about in terms of where do you expect your research to take you in the next you know, year or two? Yeah, so I think that you know, this general class of private computations is very underexplored, especially from the academic world. I think it would be very interesting to some of the work that we've done in the past to basically develop things like private smart contracts that could be well motivated for you know Ethereum-like models or for new types of blockchain models. And this would solve not only the issues around uh, private information that people want to compute and, and transact with each other about, but also potentially act as a, a mechanism to basically solve some of the scaling problems that are uh, implicit in blockchains. What are some of the, the biggest bottlenecks preventing preventing this this sort of research? Is there something you'd like to see the blockchain ecosystem doing to help support it, or other bottlenecks elsewhere? Yeah, I, I would say first off, you know, <laughs> this is one of those cases where the technology itself is very early, and there's been a lot of reception from industry to basically adopt uh, the, this tech. You know, it's one of those cases where I think. It's very valuable for the industry that is using this technology to contribute back to academia, either through their own publications of, of use cases and work that they, they use this technology for, or also to help with funding some of the professors and helping to motivate the interest. Um, if you kind of look back to uh, AI machine learning you know, 20, 30 years ago, I, I would say that the class sizes you know, in universities around these topics are quite small. You could think about from like uh, from Berkeley where I graduated is about like 30 people and over the years as as those uh, technologies made their way towards industry and you can see now you know your Google Apple Facebook uh, Amazons um, are all leveraging uh, some of this work from past researchers um, and past students it's very well motivated that they're supporting the universities and their research endeavors and suddenly these class sizes are also just growing they're, they're growing at least in Berkeley to three four hundred students and a lot of academics are interested in developing new approaches for AI and machine learning here. But I would say that this space is uh, still in, in its uh, in its infancy in terms of its applications for blockchains today. And um, that's where I think contributing back will help to motivate very similar developments uh, in the academic world and, and help to get uh, more students involved in cryptography and computer security and researching distributed systems. And uh, these are all very fun topics. But you know, one part is just getting exposure for those students. And then the other part is to have them adopt and use this. You mentioned earlier, when you get into a little bit about how Zcash works and why Zcash you know, is switching from ZK Snarks to ZK Starks. Sure. Explain what that is. Sure. So Zcash is a protocol that was developed many years ago that basically uses a Bitcoin-like blockchain to provide anonymous payments. There's a few properties that Zcash enables. One is a it's, it's decentralized, so it works when you're given any type of uh, ledger, uh, you know, say, for example, Bitcoin-like ledger. The second point is that it's it's privacy-preserving, so you know anyone in this network can basically post a payment, and they can post it for anybody else without revealing themselves, the receiver, 
or the amount that they're transacting with. Lastly, it's also very efficient. Uh, so this is using ZK Snarks. And the uh, uh, good things about it is that verifying a transaction in this case would be you know, just like about a, a kilobyte uh, in size, and it would take only a few seconds to verify. Currently, those those proofs for those private transactions that you create take about a minute to produce, but there will be a network upgrade coming in the fall uh, called Sapling. And what this will enable is basically proofs that would take only you know, merely seconds to produce. Totally. Should we get into some of the other privacy-preserving protocols, or is there more you wanted to say about zero-knowledge proofs first? Sure, yeah. So oh, actually, I guess I didn't touch on uh, Starks, so to speak. So yeah, so you know, there is also this new area of uh, research that is coming out uh, called Starks. Um, these are basically zero-knowledge, scalable, transparent arguments of knowledge. And you know what that jumble is basically providing you are, are specific properties. One is uh, universality. So this system can work for any types of computations, such as so long as you can represent that computation in some algebraic form. Secondly, it provides a property of transparency. So, you know, all of the messages uh, that are sent by the verifier are considered uh, very, very simple. So your dependencies are, are around things like cryptographic uh, hash functions. And these things are very uh, public in nature and easily verifiable by basically anyone, in this case, on a network. Additionally, you get scalability. And so what this means is that the prover scales, um, in this case, um, quasi-linearly to the number of cycles. Also, uh, the verifier scales uh, very nicely, in this case, uh, polylogarithmically for uh, the more technically-minded uh, audience members. And uh, I think the last most interesting property of these systems is basically post-quantum security. What that means is that the cryptographic primitives that underlie the security of the system are either the existence of things like you know collision resistant hash functions or uh, just common access uh, to certain random functions and this is a very nice feature for you know going forward as more more systems are developed to basically do quantum computations um, you, you have this risk of things like discrete log attacks and uh, having algorithms that can basically factor numbers down to their primes uh, Basically, we, we're trying to prevent these types of attacks in, in the system. And um, I think that Starks themselves are quite naturally motivated for things that are, you know, Zcash-like, but also for the general class of, you know, private smart contracts and computations. And if you think about every user that wants to build a private, or as you know, Zcash Foundation calls it, a ZAP, as your knowledge application, this would basically provide you a new type of setup where you don't have these trusted setups for each application that you build. And therefore, you one, mitigate some of those security risks in these networks, but you also have something that's, that's more practical. It doesn't have these proving keys and verifying keys that are just massive depending on the size of the problem. I have one more question. So my question is, how would you differentiate the class of problems that would be best developed with Starks versus Snarks? So if a team was coming on and they wanted to develop something uh, with your knowledge proofs, what advice would you give them in terms of deciding between the two? Yeah, so this is a really good question. Starks today are just making their way out of the research world. It's very early. What I find most interesting is the theoretic construction where you have less dependencies in them, um, less cryptographic dependencies. And what uh, what makes that so unique then is the fact that the tech is very early. So the constructions that you have are not the most efficient. Whereas if you look at Snarks today, you know, this is after many years of develop, development and refinement, and you have constructions that are very efficient in the prover and the setup and uh, also in the, in the verifier. I, I look forward to this body of work really progressing forward. And uh, if one had to make a distinction between these two, I would say 
Starks today are very useful for things that are for uh, developers that have unique use cases and also ones that are uh, rather small in, in the problem size. There currently is one particular uh, library that is a reference implementation called libstar. This work is still in the world of uh, you know research research level code. So for anyone out there that wants to use the library, I would very much recommend you know porting it and having uh, proper and formal security audits done on the library. This this work is mainly developed for uh, academia, um, for you know research publications and and testing theories, and not so much on production use cases. Whereas uh, if you look at uh, you know a library like LibSnark, it still is not intended for production use cases, but has been through many security audits by different groups and has been updated to support some of the uh, critical bug fixes that are out there, as well as uh, new types of ZK-SNARK protocols that are still coming up and coming out of the academic world today. Uh, how would you differentiate how Zcash uses zero-knowledge proofs versus how Monero uses zero-knowledge proofs, like bulletproofs? So Zcash uses um, zero-knowledge proofs here to enable fully private payments. What this means is if you take like a Bitcoin transaction, you have the sender, the sender's address, you have the receiver's address, and the payment amount. Those three things are encrypted in a private transaction on Zcash. And once you're encrypted, there's no simple way to determine whether this is a valid payment or not. And so what you use here is a ZK snark to basically compute those values and check that the address correlates with the proper uh, sender. The receiving address also correlates with a valid receiver, and uh, the amount itself is valid. What this then enables you to do is broadcast on the network a private transaction where those three details are encrypted and you have a proof bundled with it. And this allows everybody on the network for the remainder of time to check that this is a valid spend. What, uh, what, what Monero is doing is an iteration on CoinJoin. And in CoinJoin, this is a mixing notion, a decentralized mixing protocol where users are basically submitting their coins in. And as part of the network architecture, you can mix and obfuscate each other's transactions by basically shuffling the coins in the network. What Monero added in recent years was basically Ring CT. This is a, conf- a technique for confidential transactions. And uh, what this will allow you to do is hide the payment amounts. So confidential transactions, as they pertain for things like um, like Ring CT or even techniques like Bulletproofs can be valuable for basically obfuscating the payment amounts here. And the payment amounts themselves are a critical kind of attack vector uh, in the Monero architecture because if you don't have enough uh, people who are sending in deposits that are uh, that are not unique, then you risk these issues around fungibility. So for example, if you had a pool of like, you know, 10 people, and this is to put it very simply. So if you had a pool of 10 people who each put in, you know, like one, uh, one coin, and you had this one other guy who put in 1.6 of a coin, then you know, after you do all your shuffling and you go to withdraw, it's very clear who is the address uh, on the other end that is correlated with the guy who came in with 1.6. That's because that's the only person that's there. So if you use confidential transactions and you blind the actual amounts that are in this pool in one round, then it would help that person who was submitting 1.6 coins in to be obfuscated from the rest of the participants. Got it. So just to summarize, Zcash uses zero-knowledge proofs to completely make private uh, transactions, uh, whereas Monero just uses zero-knowledge proofs to hide the amounts. 
Yeah, and, and I would say that you know th these are all very experimental approaches. Um, you know, you can think about these just a few years old, and I would say that this is just on the protocol level. You can also think about some of the risks that a user may have from the network level, like say your ISP is always pinging for like specific specific uh, uh, packet formats, or uh, you could even think about uh, on the application level where you know, certain exchanges or stores or wallets uh, support. Zcash or support Monero. And if you have addresses and keys that are held by those uh, service providers, then they basically learn as much about your balances and transaction history as you do just because of the fact that they are, they're having shared state with you. I don't know if we want to make that bit into the podcast, by the way, but uh, it's it's a valid point of concern. So I, I don't want to scare the community around this. <laughs> what should we talk about next? So I guess like, you know, one, one thing that I find uh, interesting is there has been a huge rise in interest on privacy preserving techniques um, i'm curious you know from your guys's angle how did how did you guys really get interested in this and wh what are some of the use cases that you're currently exploring and wanting to develop yeah so the way i got into this space is because very early on when i just discovered ethereum really i realized that we don't have a computation layer we don't have a d distributed or de decentralized computation layer uh, and i kind of started digging into the problem and kind of asking the question of how do you prove that a node has done honest work? And I realized it's a, actually a really hard problem to solve that has been around for quite some time. And that's kind of how I just stumbled upon zero-knowledge proofs and realized that at this moment in time, they're best used for privacy-preserving techniques. And so that's kind of, that was my pathway into this uh, into this focus area. But yeah, and then I realized that this piece of technology is actually extremely powerful and it can be used for so many more applications outside of blockchain as well. There are a lot of theoretical examples of how that of how that is used. So one example is how do you do computation on sensitive data where you don't where you don't, you know, show all like user data in terms of um, people's age or race or med medical conditions and still be able to make some computation on that. Other use cases are if you go to a club, for example, right now you have to show the bouncer your your license, your driver's license, which has a lot more information that you want to show to the bouncer. It has your has your full birth date, it has your address, it has your full name, and many and some other information. Where all you need to prove to the bouncer is that you're over 21. So can we have like a system that just for example, gives a proof about a sensitive piece of information without giving that piece of information. Yeah, and I guess to play devil's advocate, this technology itself, because it's uh, it's it can potentially be fully uh, anonymous. Do you think regulators are going to have concerns around this? I think that there's very much a a, a concern from folks today on just private payments. Um, if we started to enable use cases like private computations um, for things like elections and for you know marketplaces and attestations on one's credentials, it seems like uh, there could potentially be much larger concerns present uh, uh, for regulators and lawmakers. Yeah, that is an excellent question. It's definitely uh, a concern for pretty much everyone involved in, in this field. You know, for me personally, I don't believe that this tech is evil. I think it's actually for the good of the people uh, because you're able to protect people's privacy and still offer kind of the same set of services. But I, I do agree that uh, it can be spun in a very negative way such that regulators would not be happy. Howard, do you think a lot about regulatory and like adoption, consumer adoption? Yeah, I find that privacy is just not a sexy topic for folks. Uh, the way that I'd like to kind of paint it in the blockchain world is that you have like scalability as like your offense on a football team and you have privacy as like your defense on the football team. The defense is just as important as the offense, but 
you know, the, the quarterback, the, 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 the guy who, who is catching the ball and running with it is much more sexy than, you know, the, the, the defense side of things. And I, I think that in this case, we find that getting this uh, notion of privacy out to users has to correlate with very distinct and uniquely attributable features. So uh, things like, you know, data ownership, where uh, users today are on you know, social media platforms and video sharing sites and, and, and search engines where they are leaking a lot of their intents. They're showing a lot of their interests uh, to these companies that basically aggregate data. And uh, it's used to basically monetize it, either through advertising or through the sale of the data or through the um, use for basically leveraging that for improved products and services. Um, I think that these are certainly valuable use cases um, and it's, it's very important. But I think this a lot of this is basically behind closed doors to the user. Um, they don't have even knowledge that what their data is being used for. They don't have the ability to inspect uh, how their data is being used. They don't have the ability to recall some of the information that they've shared. And those are really fundamental things that we take for granted. And we have no ways to really capture that value today. I think that you know, blockchains would basically enable a new approach uh, to a data ownership model. But for us to even get there and have that conversation, privacy preserving techniques need to become more advanced, more fleshed out and really just integrate it into these architectures. Um, it's just super early right now. In summary, could you perhaps summarize the different approaches taken by privacy coins and, and how they differ and sort of what are the trade-offs between them? I think, so there, there's a host of privacy-preserving protocols that are useful today. You know, the, one of the first ones is basically using trusted hardware. It's a quite contentious area because of the dependencies around certain uh, hardware manufacturers like you know, Intel or ARM or AMD. But what trusted hardware enables you to do is to have a box, a very secure box where you can run your computations inside. And uh, the CPU is basically guarding against um, other uh, applications on your computer from accessing that, that, uh, that box. So whatever you're computing in there is basically uh, protected and it runs inside of these things called secure enclaves so that you can have uh, private data that can be loaded in and private code that can be loaded in and basically computed for some result. And what the enclave will do is sign an attestation that says, hey, like I ran this code on this data at this time and this was valid and uh, not tampered with. There are other approaches that are a bit more cryptographically sophisticated. So for example, uh, secure multi-party computations. And what this means is you have a, a group of participants who may or may not trust each other, each run some piece of some computation. Uh, some of the most common examples are basically like looking at things like secure multi-party computations with like garbled circuits where you have this millionaire's problem. And uh, it, this is basically to say like, hey, like if there's like 10 people here, you know, who's the wealthiest of all of us? And maybe you know, everybody has a bank account balance and um, everybody puts in their bank account balance. And as part of this computation, it doesn't leak to each other you know, your bank account balances. But at the end of the round, after everybody has run this, you could very, uh, very clearly determine which, uh, which person is the wealthiest one. The most canonical example then back in the day was this original paper by, by Yao, which basically showed this for two parties. And it has since been extended to much broader problems. There's another host of protocols uh, that are in the world of homomorphic encryption. So there's uh, fully homomorphic encryption. There's also partially homomorphic encryption and varying degrees of this where you're basically getting uh, encodings of numbers and computing on those numbers. So for example, if you have like, you know, I have a number A and a number B, and uh, I want to find out what A plus B equals, maybe it's too complex for me to do it on my, on my uh, mobile device. And I want to give it to, you know, AWS to compute. Well, what I would do then is say, you know, sample some number, like call it G, and I exponentiate G to the A, 
and I exponentiate g to the b, and I send g to the a and g to the b uh, to AWS and say, hey, please compute this for me. And it will then multiply uh, g to the a with g to the b. And if you look in the exponent, uh, you basically get a plus b uh, for free then. So you would get the result back that's g to the a plus b. And if you just you know, uh, take the log of g, then you can get uh, a plus b as your final answer. You know, in practice, uh, homomorphic encryption is quite uh, computationally expensive. And because of that, we don't see uh, production deployments of this uh, in its uh, FHG or fully homomorphic encryption scheme. But there are certain partial homomorphic encryption approaches that are leveraged by some of the tech companies today. There's also you know, uh, verification games uh, like Truebit, where you basically have a, a more human delegated protocol. So participants are basically on this network watching for each other's computations and checking periodically that the results themselves are valid. If someone were to claim that you know a computation isn't valid, then what's nice about these architectures is that you have a very efficient scheme for verifying. So oftentimes the logic or, or, or the, the code that is written is one where you can basically map it out in like a tree and you can uh, give this to some, some uh, adjudicator who will basically run the computation at the point where you said you know the computation differs and they can basically check whether this difference is uh, truly malicious or if uh, the computation itself was uh, was correct and honest. And for the people who identify these errors, they basically can win a jackpot. That's a very nice approach to, to uh, scaling on networks where some of the cryptographic approaches are too costly. Um, and it's something that we uh, see as like uh, implementation in the blockchain space today. And lastly, there's uh, zero-knowledge proofs. And what zero-knowledge proofs enable are those private computations where, you know, you have some secret, as we discussed earlier, but you don't want to reveal it to other people. So instead, what you do is you prove that you know the secret through the circuits or, or some construction that basically gives the problem statement uh, to the user. Zero-knowledge proofs uh, today are reaching that domain of practicality, and that's why things like Zcash are, are prevalent in, and, and, uh, in, in industry use cases. For all the engineers and researchers out there who are sort of curious about privacy and, and thinking about where to best play a role like what's your sort of request for projects or request for research or request for for opportunities in the space where do you want to see people people innovating yeah i would say for one cryptography is not really valued so much as some of the other fields today in industry i think that a lot a lot of people look at privacy and, and computer security in general as that as like a, a downside protection but i would say it's a really good enabler for new use cases and new features and so you know one is to just get folks more interested in learning cryptography taking courses like that but also for the builders in the space today i would really advocate for them to you know consult a cryptographer or work with a cryptographer to ensure that their protocol is uh, is built is built properly it's really easy to mess up a secure a security scheme and uh, it's also very easy to accidentally kind of shift the model and the assumption that you're making in your protocol as you build it out. So, you know, consulting uh, experts on this, I think, is absolutely critical. But I would also say from like the, the investment world to basically bring on these academics into the space more, have them at the, have them at the, the conversations um, that you have with some of these teams and also to help fund some of their the research either for through grad students or through specific initiatives and endeavors. Um, there's certainly centers at different universities around the world today that are looking not only at cryptography as 
a discipline uh, from the theory side, but also from uh, cryptography and the application side. And that's where, you know, you have centers for blockchain research at, at various universities and also uh, clubs and, and organizations like Blockchain at Berkeley that are very open towards basically working with industry folks to try to bring more adoption to, uh, to these uh, ideas. Cool. Elena, Howard, any any last words, anything you want to leave the leave the audience or listenership with? I don't know. This has been a pretty fun interview, so I, I don't know. <laughs> what do you want to add, Howard? I would say this is a fun interview as well. And I hope folks uh, who are listening um, try to understand a little bit more about and be a little bit more cognizant when you know, they're online, uh, how their information is being used um, and use that to kind of understand where cryptography can come to be a benefit for them. But I guess for the privacy coin folks out there, uh, keep watching and uh, hopefully more projects are, are coming out in this particular space. Awesome. And where can people find you guys online and anything people should stay tuned for? So uh, my Twitter is one Howard Wu, the number one, then Howard Wu. Um, you can find me there. Yeah. And my Twitter is Lean the Bean. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. This has been a great episode. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check out more at www.villageglobal.vc. We'd love to learn more about what you're up to.